0: Fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums! I'm Wade. And I'm Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie and <laughs> popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes in them over time. Today we are continuing our miniseries, x 23 about fox's x-men films we will fully spoil today's films but we will try at all costs not to spoil any future entries in the series up right now it's x-men the last stand Emmett, how are you doing today i am doing all right all right well there's no time we have a lot to talk about <laughs> okay. today so we got to get right into it um so this movie uh brian singer left the left and took his whole team with him uh-huh. to go and work on Superman Returns. So this movie is directed by Brett Ratner, uh-huh. who is a director and producer. His other directorial works include the Rush Hour films, Okay, Red Dragon, mm-hmm. the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, Oh, gotcha. and 2014's Hercules mm-hmm. with Dwayne the Rock Johnson.
1: Didn't know that was a thing. Have to check it out after this. <laughs>
0: His work as a producer was going to include the 2011 Oscars until, during the run-up, he was caught on tape saying, "And I'll have to bleep this out." Quote: "Rehearsal is for Jesus Christ." Quote. <laughs> um. Now I know what you're thinking. Finally, a week where we don't have to talk about Brian Singer. Yeah. In October 2017, during the Me Too movement, a former talent agency employee accused Ratner of rape. On November 1st, 2017, six women, including Natasha Henstridge and future franchise star Olivia Munn, accused Ratner of sexual assault and harassment. As well as following an actress into a bathroom without invitation, in April 2018, Warner Brothers announced that they would not renew their 450 million dollar co-producing deal with Ratner as a result of the allegations. A mere year after he was given a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Jesus. Well. Anything to add to that? <laughs> uh, the only thing I have to add for that
1: add to that is I'm just glad I don't like this movie. <laughs>
0: This film was written by Zach Penn, who you'll remember as one of the writers of the dueling drafts of X Two. Right, right. He did not actually get script credit on that movie, but he did get story credit, I think. Okay. Um, but him and David Hayter wrote those original dueling drafts, and it was also written by Simon Kinberg, mm-hmm. who the year before this wrote Triple X State of the Union. And Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Okay. And he goes on to uh, write for Star Wars Rebels, which is an oh, amazing wow. TV show, and to be kind of like the guy running this franchise.
1: Running the X Men franchise? Yes. Okay.
0: Him and Brian Singer are kind of like the two men who have like real creative control and are like looking at the overarching picture as we go on. Uh, But this is his first involvement with the franchise here. The music was by John Powell, who also did the music for Shrek, How to Train Your Dragon, Happy Feet, and Solo, Star Wars story. Oh, wow. The director of photography was Dante Spinote, who is a frequent collaborator with Brett Ratner and with Michael Mann, uh, with whom he shot Heat, The Insider, and L.A. Confidential, which he was Oscar nominated for. Oh, wow. It runs an hour and 44 minutes. It was released May 26, 2006. Mm -hmm. And what other films came out in 2006 that we should know about? So
1: here are the other top grossing films of 2006. And cast my mind back. Uh, Yeah, cast your mind back. Everyone's wearing the bootcut jeans. At this point, um, we've kind of been tracking this. Every single movie in the top 10 is going to be a franchise film. Wow. Uh, either the first or a sequel in a franchise. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest comes in at number one,
0: grossing $1 billion that wow. year. Wow. Yeah. So this is the start of, or I don't know if this exact movie, but around here is the start of when a movie has to make a billion dollars to like be considered a hit. Oh, okay. Because now like, a movie is not like a runaway success if it doesn't make a billion dollars. That's insane. That is... <laughs> That's
1: truly wild. That's okay. I am floored by that. But anyway, to move on with our list, in number two, we have Da Vinci Code which of course Ron does Howard. does have sequels so it is while we think of it as being more like an adult drama it is part of a franchise
0: that's shocking to me that Da Vinci Code made was the second highest grossing film of the year yeah right more than this movie that's truly wild
1: yeah oh this movie doesn't come in for a while on this list so oh, okay. hold, hold, up, hold on hold hey, on I guess I didn't even yeah Ice Age the Meltdown I'm not sure if that's three or I four I th- think that's oh that's a good question I think it's three I think so I I obviously didn't go deep on the research for this one next is casino royale Mm. the beginning of the uh daniel craig daniel craig james bond run um which is still not over (laughs) the next is night at the museum the first one then we have cars and then at number seven we have x uh x-men the last stand i almost called it x3 because that's what i write it down as but it is x-men the last stand yeah no no three in the title. no three in that title which made you said uh, this is the year that movies started to have to make a billion dollars to be considered a success (laughs) this movie made a little over 460 million so i would say not a success by your standard there um but still in the top 10 underneath that is mission impossible 3 Mm. um beneath that is the brian singer classic superman returns Oh wow! And beneath that is Happy Feet. Interesting. I know we're kind of tracking like the evolution in these top tens of children's movies, like taking over. Um, at this point, we have four that are definitely kids movies with Ice Age, Night at the Museum, Cars, and Happy Feet, and then we can argue whether X Three, uh, Mission Impossible, Superman Returns, and Pirates of the Caribbean are like kind of kids movies. You know, they're like at least young adult movies and really only the da vinci code and casino royale on here could you consider to be even close to like an adult drama
0: um, yeah but even those are like pg-13 yeah but and I, it, I do it, see what you mean you know what i'm saying though right yeah uh,
1: but it's interesting that like from i think in the first one there's only like two movies that were kids movies in the mm-hmm. whole top 10 to being like overwhelmingly and this is kind of what you were saying um uh, also on that episode
0: Yeah, Uh, it feels like there was a turn, I don't know exactly when it happens, but where parents will, like, not go to the movies to see something for them. Yeah. Like, now you will, like, rent a movie or soon stream a movie for adults while the kids are sleeping. But, like, if you go to the movie, it's for, like, a big family affair. Exactly. Or it's for, like, a franchise that can't be spoiled. Like a franchise that you have to see opening weekend before uh, people spoil yeah. it on Twitter or at work or whatever. Yeah.
1: Also notable this year in this year in film, uh, and this is the first time for us, I'm not sure, like I haven't checked all of the years in between, but this is the first for us on these lists that the movie that won Best Picture was not in the top 10 highest grossing films of that year. Uh, Best mm. Picture and Best Director go to Martin Scorsese's The Departed. Um, in 2006
0: oh a good film I'm surprised it wasn't well maybe with what we're talking about I'm not surprised yeah I'm surprised that the movie the one best picture was ever in the top 10 movies of the year on next week's episode we're going to talk about remind me to talk about how the Oscars get broken because that is the year 2009 that like permanently destroys the Oscars interest in terms of best picture
1: I believe and I'm just going to throw this in here that I think the Oscars are a defunct institution and should no longer exist um, especially after what was revealed on our first episode that Halle Berry is the only woman of color to ever win Best Actress, that's yeah. completely absurd. Appalling. They should just disband. And I think award shows in general are kind of stupid. Um, but even more so when you consider like the institutional sexism and racism that goes into them. Like no,
0: like very few women ever winning Best Director for, or uh, only so. one, Catherine Bigelow. Oh, my God. Who uh, was going to direct the original X-Men for James Cameron. It feels like the Oscars are, like, the only award show that has maintained its prestige. Yeah. You know, like, the Grammys aren't really that big of a deal. It's just, like, whatever sells the most. Mm -hmm. Like, the Tonys and the Emmys, like, people pay attention to them. Right. But the only thing that it's, like, a huge deal for still, it feels like, is the Oscars, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. I was recounting the story off mic to you earlier this week, which Mm -hmm. I'll briefly tell, which is that the very first year the Oscars were a thing, there was no, like, Academy voting members. It was just, like, anyone, write who you think the best actor, best actress, best movie is and mail it in and we'll count them all up and meet in, like, a hotel conference room and say who they are. Yeah. And the best actor overwhelmingly was a dog. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm sorry I don't have his name here, but it was like 80% of the votes went to this dog. And the Oscar to like maintain that prestige and to like set a precedent that this was a serious thing just threw all of those away and gave it to the runner-up.
1: Actually, they gave it to the fourth-place runner-up after Harambe and Dee's Nuts. <laughs>
0: oh, my God. Uh, this movie was made for a budget of $210 million, which was, at the time, the most expensive movie ever made also double the budget of the last movie which was double the budget of its predecessor damn that's unadjusted for inflation it is now unadjusted for inflation the 35th most expensive movie of all time so you're
1: saying that 34 movies have been made since then that were more expensive
0: including one that year pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest okay but it was that movie. It just came out before that movie did, huh? Yeah, it was just made before that movie. Okay. So it was, at the time, it was made. Interesting. The most expensive. Um, so by our odds, it needed, by our little calculation, it needed to make 420 to break even. It made 460, uh-huh. which makes it, uh, up until now, the highest grossing. Of the entire series, uh-huh. but if our calculations are correct, looking at the profit margins... The lowest
1: netting. Yeah, yeah. the
0: lowest return back to the studio, uh-huh. but the highest profit, and I'll be curious to see how that stays as we go on. Yeah, um, an interesting number to track. Emmett, what was your first experience with this movie?
1: Okay, I talked a little bit about this on the very first podcast because it was my first experience with any X-Men movie. Um, it was right around the time when my youngest sister Mariah was being born. Uh, my mom was in the hospital on the mainland and my cousin was taking care of us back on the Island. And when we went, like we were going to visit my mom in the hospital and either on our way that back or on our way there, we had a little bit of extra free time. And he was like, Hey, you want to go watch a movie? I really want to see this third X-Men movie that's coming out. And I was like, X-Men, what's that? I was 11 years old at the time. And I was like, X-Men, what's that? And so we went and watched it. And uh, I think I I talked to you a little bit about this off, uh, off mic earlier too, about how I think I may have had the best possible experience with this movie because I saw sure. it when I didn't have any other X-Men movie to compare it to. So I was like, wow, this is great. And then Charles was like, yeah, if you like that, then
0: we need to get you to see the other ones so you can know how trash that was. <laughs> I first saw this movie. Well, okay, let me peel it back a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, I was at this point, like, already very into reading movie reviews and movie mm-hmm. media and news. Mm-hmm. I think that started in the run up to uh, Revenge of the Sith, which oh. came out in 2005. I actually think the year before with The Incredibles is the first time I remember, like, mm-hmm. sitting down and reading a lot of movie reviews. Um, but I was aware. That Brian Singer had left this one, so my expectations for it were really low huh. because I loved X two uh-huh. and the work there, and I was obviously very excited that he was going to go and do Superman, right? Who is my favorite superhero? I loved Superman the movie, mm-hmm. so when the reviews for this came out and just like said that it was not good, mm-hmm. and I heard I think like on the playground too that they like kill three people like right off the bat. Uh-huh. I, as a kid, was just like, I don't want to see it. It's going to be bad. I don't care about it. Damn. And I didn't want to see it. I that's, saw it. That's strong.
1: That's like a strength of will that I did not possess
0: at that age. <laughs> I saw it. Um, It's a strength of will that I will not possess later in this franchise, which I wish I had to save <laughs> myself some dollars in time of seeing these movies in the theater. I saw it at a sleepover. I went to one sleepover at this kid's house. It was a year or two later. He was a really nice guy, but we weren't, like, close friends. Uh Uh, It was kind of arranged by my dad. Um, He was, like, the other cancer survivor. So it was like, we have to be friends. And he was a nice guy. I just, like, Uh, wasn't close to him, you know? Yeah. So I went over to the sleepover, and I remember that we played Halo... There were other oh, yeah. guys there. There was like five or six of us. Classic we played Halo
1: over right there,
0: playing some Halo. We played. Wait, it. Just a pause. <laughs> were you terrible at Halo? Um, I don't remember what I did then, but I do know from later on that I am pretty bad at Halo. Okay. The maps are just so big. As someone who never had an Xbox and played those games, yeah, that yeah. I like just always get lost in the maps and I'm not doing what Dude, I'm supposed to. do. I was do. always so
1: bad at that. It was such. It was just like such a bad moment whenever everybody's like, "Let's play Halo," and you're like.
0: So, uh, and then we watched Bo-Rat <laughs> and this movie, X-Men The Last Stand, uh, because everyone everyone kept saying over and over, I'm juggernaut, <laughs> and I was like, what is, what is that? <laughs> um, and then we watched both of those movies. I would say that is like what both of these movies are made for, is uh, uh-huh. like eleven year old boy sleepover, yeah, and I totally turned my nose up. I was morally offended by both of them, um, but I was an elitist as a kid, and I'm a populist now and then X men the last stand, flop or bop, oh God
1: <laughs> okay, well <laughs> so so i'm going have to oh yeah i'm going have to say it's a it's a flop. Um, this is my first one for this series, right? But I will say, (laughs) the series that you picked, the series that I picked, I will say that up until like for the first half of this movie, Uh watching it today, I was like, "Oh, this is better than this is better than I remembered." And then everything that happened in the second half, I was like, "Oh, right, this is why I hate this movie." So I would say this is a movie that like has a lot of potential. And draws you in with, like, some stuff in the beginning that seems to be setting up some cool things. And then just completely falls apart. Not in the third act. Hmm. About halfway through the second act. Hmm. Um, or maybe even at the beginning of the second act. Like, when Professor dies? Is that about when you're talking about? Yeah. that's the
0: halfway mark. Almost exactly. Yeah, it's
1: almost exactly the halfway mark. I would say that after he dies, the rest of the movie is just kind of like a rushed nonsense show to the end. Hmm. Before he dies, I think there's interesting things. I don't think it's good necessarily, but I do think they're like setting stuff up that given different choices in the the latter half could have paid off better.
0: Sure. But yeah, for me, it's a flop. Hmm. How about for you? Flop or bop? Uh, this is absolutely a flop. I went into this rewatch trying to find things I liked about it. Uh-huh. Like, I really wanted to be open to it. Because my question was, mm-hmm. my attitude toward these films now is like, the first two are okay. Uh-huh. As a kid, I loved the first two. Uh-huh. And I've always disliked this third one. Mm-hmm. But my question was, would an average viewer, someone mm-hmm. who just watches all of these movies now, right, just be like, All of these movies are kind of dated and old, but they're all about the same quality. Like, there's no big difference with this third one. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's just absolute garbage (laughs) that anyone would be able to immediately see. I think the quality of movie making, Mm -hmm. of directing, Mm -hmm. of writing, and of acting Mm -hmm. is so much lower in this. Yeah, Compared not just to X2, but to the original X-Men. Yeah. I think that, like... Actors who were very good in all of these movies are terrible in this. Yeah. And are given really bad material, are continually asked to make choices that make no sense for their character. Yes. And are just shot in such a listless way. I'm like, what like, what other movie have I ever seen Ian McKellen be bad in? But he is just bad in this. It's brutal. And there are like long scenes where they're just like filming him from the wrong angles and for too long Uh so it just kind of it just kind of looks like he doesn't know what to do there
1: are there there are a lot of those fades from to to bring in another third movie there's a lot of those like return of the jedi like crossfades Hmm. where they're just like don't know how to end the scene to cut directly into the next scene so they're going to do a full fade and then a full fade up into another thing and like transitions are important and if you can't get those right like you're you're just like stalling the, the forward momentum of the story too, wow. just like on that note Sorry. sure
0: wow thank you for giving me that podcast feedback on the air I will certainly remember <laughs> that I'm glad you brought up Return of the Jedi uh-huh. because I want to ask you what is it about the third movie that is so hard to get right in these trilogies it's Ugh. I can think of, you know, countless examples of beloved series where there's kind of like a solid standalone first one, uh-huh. a beloved second one, mm-hmm. and then like a third one that famously misses the mark. Yeah. Including uh contemporary, the Spider-Man movie, uh-huh. uh, which is always a year behind, but in two thousand four Spider Man two came out, uh-huh. which we kind of talked about last week, is another like critically Critic- liked yeah. superhero mm-hmm. movie, and then a year after this, Spider Man three, which is like a meme of a movie, comes out. Yeah. Well, I, so I think there's a couple of things going on. Mm-hmm. I think,
1: like some of the things that are wrong with this movie are specific to this movie, but like in the third movie idea, it's like second movies in trilogies. the The purpose that they serve is to develop character, yeah, deepen the problems. Um, if you're like following that classic like heroes, hero's journey arc that's going to be the darkest one it's going to be the part where they go into like the land of the dead or the underworld or like the scariest thing and at the end of by the end of that movie they should come out stronger um with like the magic weapon that they're going to use in the third movie to conquer the bad guy obviously in a a series like star wars which is much clearer of a single arc than the X-Men are, which all seem more standalone. It's one of the things I've talked about liking about the first two. I don't think it pays off in this one very well, is that that idea that you're going to deepen the problems and they really get to do their own thing. Like you have a lot of freedom writing and directing a second movie because you can go pretty much wherever you want to and you don't really have to wrap it all up. You can still leave some narrative threads trailing at the end um, and say, okay, that is the third movie's problem. Uh-huh. I think a movie that does this famously, although I love this movie, um, is The Last Jedi. The Last Jedi famously like opens a ton of doors and potentially given a better <laughs> whatever on the third movie, yeah. could have, like, all of those things could have been explored and wrapped up in very interesting ways, but it really just asks a lot of questions. It gets deeper into those characters. But it doesn't resolve everything. So I think there's something about that. Like when you go to do the third movie, you're like how, like how, okay, now I have to have like a conclusion on this. I have to have a happy ending. Like everybody has to get what they want in the end, but we also have to build to this climatic battle. And unless, I mean, I think a lot of third movie problems come out of vague setup in a second movie. That would be like, that if you think you're going to do a trilogy you have to have set that stuff up for it to pay off well in a third movie a third movie should not have to introduce an entire new villain and an entire new like thing to go get and like plot line to go achieve uh-huh. it should be the part where like all of the th- all of the separate strands mm-hmm. that have been like separating from the beginning of the first one come back together i think that's something that you see in lord of the rings working really well uh and, and famously you i mean you asked me last night like are there any good third movies and we said that lord of the rings return of the king is maybe the best of all three of those um, yeah, and comes favorite. together and comes together really well it's not my personal favorite but it is probably the best as a movie of the three of them
0: I think uh, *Return of the King* and also *Toy Story 3* mm-hmm. are examples of escalation. Yeah, trying to do that, which I think is hard, and yeah. I think that's the technique where you see most threes stumble. Yeah, because like when you have like a first movie that people like, mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to make a second movie out of it. You say, like, what did they like? Let's make it bigger. Let's make it more fun. Mm -hmm. And then let's, like, introduce new characters and problems into the mix. For sure. And then with the third movie, it's like, do you escalate from there? Do you try to go even bigger? Right. Which is where I think so many threes collapse under their own bombast. Like, The Dark Knight Rises. Oh, yeah. Like, um, The Rise of Skywalker, which you mentioned earlier. Return of the Jedi. Uh Uh-huh. Or... Do you take like a left turn Uh and do something weird and different? Yeah. Some successes I can think of that are like Back to the Future Mm 3 where suddenly it's a Western Uh, or uh, Planet of the Apes where it's like a biblical epic silent movie. Uh Like when you do something completely different for the third, I think that normally works well, but that is kind of skirting the problem rather than like facing it head on. I think about a third movie that I love uh-huh. is,
1: uh, and like people, some people hate this
0: movie, so like, whatever.
1: But is At World's End the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie?
0: That's an, that's another escalation movie. For it, sure. it is it is escalation, but I think it works.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's an example of the escalation thing done right, and I think they've laid enough of the groundwork through the second movie and left it just open enough at the end of the second movie. And, like, they knew where they were going into the third movie with with that one in a way that I think that not all of them pull off. And it does get, like, a little silly, but it is, I think it has, like, a pretty good emotional payoff. I I don't know why the second and third Pirates of the Care like, I don't like the fourth and fifth. But I don't know why the second and third Pirates of the Caribbean aren't recognized as like being as good as the first one is. Hmm. I mean the the first one's a masterpiece, but the second and third are like still pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, yeah. They tie it together well.
0: Well, we'll save that for Pod of the Castabian. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I think when I was working on a three, I've only written one trilogy. Oh, yeah. I definitely went the left turn route. Yes. Which I also try to tie it into the first one. Uh-huh. I think it thematically works, but I do know that a lot of people were like, "It, it's just like shocking uh-huh. that you have like the first one, which is fun, the second one, which is like a really big and fun, and then like the third left turn where it yes, goes like darker and dark insular." And, yeah, and everyone dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Spoiler well, alert. yeah, I guess uh, similarity <laughs> to this movie. Yeah, here, uh, here's my list of actors who I think are good in this movie. Okay. Halle Berry, yeah. Who we should talk about a little bit here. She's second build in this movie. She has way more to do. She does. She does have more to do in this movie than in any of the previous movies. She does oh she she even has kind of an arc. Yeah. Because isn't she like about to leave the X-Men at the beginning and then she becomes the leader? No, she's not about she's not about to leave. No, what what is that talk she has with Charles? I've blocked it out of my memory already. God, where she confronts him about something, and then he's like, "I want you to lead the team" or whatever. Well, she's no. What she says is, "Why are we still in hiding? Like, why are we still pretending
1: that we're not a like that we're not who we are? Like, why do we have to still like hide behind this school thing? Why can't we just like unapologetically be the X Men?" And then he kind of like diverts her by being like. I want you to lead the school after I'm done, which is pretty cool. I, I I have something written down here. Um this is on one of this is something that I saw on one of the websites is that Wolverine and Storm supposedly have a relationship in this movie, according to some websites. I was looking for it, I did not see it. I saw chemistry, yeah, but I did not see like anything written that would that would speak to a relationship between them. Um, I
0: saw it more in the second movie, even when it's just kind of that, like, flirtation chemistry. Yeah. They are certainly, like... Partners in the fact that throughout most of this movie, they are the only teachers left yeah. at the
1: school. And they're also the two most attractive people on screen. They are the co-leads of this movie. They're the there's co-leads no doubt of this movie. But they do not have like that relationship. Like, yeah, no, no, no. I agree, I agree. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's that like weird scene where she shoves him and then he shoves her up against the wall. And then yeah. she's like, you love her and all of that stuff. Yeah, which seems like if
1: they had been going in that direction, could have been a much more interesting scene. Like if they'd been like maybe oh yeah. like Wolverine and Storm are now hooking up yeah if they revealed that like, that like revealed point. that and then it's like oh but you're still messed up over Jean who you're really in love with like uh-huh. that would deepen that and like but it's not
0: it's not there textually yeah my theory about this is that Halle Berry was particularly prepped to handle this kind of material because she had done Catwoman in the interim between these two movies uh, uh, huh. like another famous flop i also think that i mean halle berry is amazing and we're used to her not really being in these movies so that this one is like kind of her movie she like really even shines more yeah because we have been like eager to see stuff from her she
1: also gets an opponent in this movie that's like specifically an opponent for her yeah like she gets someone to fight at least yeah
0: like callisto yeah i mean she doesn't have like any sort of i'm not sure they ever say her name yeah she's not like a character but she does get like a female yeah. antagonist. Yeah. I, ah, screw it. I'm going to get into this now and then I'll return to this list. I think this movie hates women. That was like one of the first things I noticed okay. is that like the attitude towards women is what's yeah, so different yeah, in this yeah, like movie. The gender
1: politics are weird.
0: Yeah. So different in this movie than in the first two where they were like kind of badly written. Yeah. In terms of like all the female characters were, all trying to hook up with Wolverine and only defined by their relationships with men. But they at least like felt like characters Uh that the movie respected. Yeah. And in this movie, like time and time again, Mm -hmm. I think it like disrespects women. It's like way more gratuitous, even than X one and two in terms of like the butt shots we get. It like immediately puts mystique on ice. Turns her into a naked, crying human. Yeah. Masiku is, like, a huge character. Yes. In 1 and 2. Jesus, my blue queen. She is gone. (laughs) Immediately takes her off the board. It has, like, characters frequently make disparaging remarks. Uh, The B word appears in this several times. Yeah, it does. Having never appeared before. Yeah,
1: that's true. Yeah. Uh, And then there's also that thing where... uh like Rogue is like says to Iceman, "Well, you're a boy. You're only after one thing, oh, which is just yeah. like such a strange thing, and like not their relationship." Yeah, like from the first two movies, it seems you know. Like- Let
0: me tell you this: um, this <laughs> movie. So in that scene, uh, at the end, uh-huh. where her and uh Bobby make up after uh-huh. she's lost her powers. Uh-huh. They filmed two takes and it was like a big debate about whether it should end with them holding hands or furiously making out. Yeah, because And there are also, I want to say, a um, lot more makeout so sessions. So many this more movie. like makeout sessions where it's like zooming in on their tongues. There's a scene of like Jean Gray running around in her underwear. But anyway, so they screened – the heads of Fox uh, screened the two versions of the scenes Uh to their daughters and to every female executive at Fox. Jesus. Is that
1: not enough for a sexual harassment
0: charge? (laughs) And they all were like, uh, it's the hand-holding. It's not the making out. Yeah. Which is why that movie ends with a man holding Jesus, which I'm thankful for. Let me get back to my list. Number two, Ellen Page. Okay, a year before Juno. All right, as Kitty Pryde, uh-huh. one of my favorite characters. Such a great character. She's grown up mm, ten years and <laughs> changed into a different actor. <laughs> she's she's grown up <laughs> between at, the movies. At, yeah, probably close to ten years. But I don't even care. I think that she like so underplays the material that it works for her. Like she has that absolutely absurd line where she's like, I miss home the lake, but she just like underplays it so heavily that she actually pulls it off in a way that like an actor as sincere as Sean Ashmore playing Iceman, Uh like trying so desperately to make something of this material. Yeah. I think her being a little
1: bit like edgier and sarcastic, like works more. Yeah. Also they just decided like, I don't I don't know what Ellen Page had done before this, but they just decided like oh, we like Ellen Page now Anna Paquin is out. We're going to like she's done. We want Ellen Page and let's sure we think Sean Ashmore's hot, so
0: why don't they get together? But it like comes back to Anna Paquin. I don't know how we're supposed to feel as an audience. Also like Kitty Pride never makes any overt moves on Bobby. Like no. this is a limp love triangle. It is a limp love triangle. And there are so many moments where she could make a move and she doesn't. If anything, it's like Bobby trifling, yeah. going into her room and like uh, giving her a hug and stuff. But there's like Yeah. a and scene on the jet st- yeah. where she is just like staring off into space, not doing anything and like he's staring at her. So it's clear that like yeah, it's not really there.
1: Also, from the comics, Kitty Pride and Colossus are like
0: that's oh, yeah. that's the couple. Number 3, it, these aren't ranked there but there were just only four good performances in this to me. Mm-hmm. Um number 3 is one I kind of turned around on over the course of the movie. It's Kelsey Grammer as Beast. Uh-huh. This is like was filmed a year after he finished Frasier. So it's one of the first like film roles after uh-huh. playing like one character for so long. But I think he's actually pretty good in this. Uh-huh. It's weird that his character is so huge and we've never met him before. Uh, Yeah. But I think like even with the makeup, he brings like a certain dignity Mm -hmm. that is befitting of his character. It is. And I think he just has like a different energy than anyone we've ever seen. And he can handle the material. Did you know that he really wanted this role? I didn't he really really wanted this role he
1: really <laughs> wanted to be an. X I had no fan. idea so much so that he agreed to audition for the first time in 20 years wow. to get this role and he got it so I wow. say good for you Kelsey Grammer yeah he really put on all that makeup and did what he had to do
0: the only time I laughed at a joke the movie was making is his joke in the final one where he does the like well sometimes you've got to be a diplomat ah screw it <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly. he's like kicking everyone my fourth good actor is Cameron Bright as the kid. Oh. Who I think is pretty good. I think he is pretty he's good. He's like a cute kid. He's only in like three scenes, but I think he like has a cool, unique atmosphere. Yeah. He's very, he's very calm. Yeah. He's very zen and it's not just the bald head. Yeah, he handles this well. I, am, I think, as we said before, actors who were good in the last one, in my opinion, do a bad job in this. I don't think yeah. Hugh Jackman does a good job in this. Nope. I love him so much. This same year, he'll be okay because he was also in Happy Feet. Hugh Jackman? Flushed Away. I love it. One of
1: the greatest, <laughs> s- straight up, Flushed Away is one of the greatest <laughs> <laughs> films of all time. And it also has Ian McKellen
0: as a villain in it. The Fountain with Darren Aronofsky. A terrible movie. The Prestige with Chris Nolan. An incredible movie. And Scoop with Woody Allen. Can't wait for us to do our Woody Allen series. Uh, the only other, Jeez. I guess, the only two casting notes I have here that I made in, during my prep, um, Ben Foster, who plays Archangel, has uh-huh. about three lines in this, yeah, and is clearly made to look as much like Draco Malfoy as possible.
1: Oh, uh, I was gonna say as much like James Dean as possible, but
0: um, he's also an indie darling. He is uh, the co lead in Hell or High Water. A movie I love, alongside Chris Pine. What? He's the other brother. No way. Yeah, which I was shocked to Whoa. read. He's also in Three Ten to Yuma, which uh, okay, he, another uh, western. Yeah, he got some rewards for. Uh, excuse me, some awards. It wasn't an Oscar, but he got like some prominent <laughs> some awards. Rewards. He got some gold for all the westerns he's been doing. Um, oh, and Vinny Jones as Juggernaut, uh, one of <laughs> one of the main culprits <laughs> in this film hating women. He's <laughs> a footballer um, who got a start in Guy Ritchie, Guy Ritchie flicks. Oh, so yeah, early he did. Ones. Oh, yeah.
1: He's the big dude in – he's, like, the big uh, assassin dude in Snatch, right? Mm, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, he also works. Like, he is in, like, six direct-to-video action movies every single year until today that no one has ever heard of. Incredible. But he, like – he gets the money, for I, sure. I mean, I love that for him, I guess. Okay, so as you referenced, um, this is directly inspired by two different runs. Mm-hmm. The Dark Phoenix Saga, yes, which I have written here is from 1980 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, mm-hmm. and Gifted from 2004 by Joss Whedon and John Cassidy. Got it right here. The gifted walk um, me through those inspirations, okay?
1: So, the story of the Dark Phoenix uh, Jean Grey is coming back from outer space, as we know, they're an intergalactic team in the comics, uh, much like the Avengers are in the MCU movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's coming back from outer space from a mission, she gets ex- exposed to the radiation of a solar flare. Which briefly allows her to attain her like full abilities as a um, telepath and as a telekine- uh, telekinesis. Through that radiation, she should have died. She becomes a being of pure thought, but she reconstitutes herself as the Phoenix. Before she was Marvel Marvel Girl, also known as Jean Grey. Now she is Jean Grey, also known as Phoenix. She has a huge amount of power. This power is not necessarily evil. It is just very super powerful. It makes her a target for a guy called Mastermind, who is trying to join the Hellfire Club. He wants to impress them by using Jean Grey, uh, like getting inside Jean Grey's mind, using her out-of-control power now as the Phoenix to defeat the X-Men. He eventually does this, and she becomes the leader of Hellfire Club for a little while. And then basically Cyclops faces off against Mastermind. Uh, Like the X-Men like face off against Mastermind, but like in the psychic realm. Mm -hmm. It's weird. Cyclops gets killed in the psychic realm, but not in real life. But Jean Grey thinks it's really happening because she's locked in the illusion. She freaks the hell out and like unleashes the Dark Phoenix power. She defeats Mastermind. And then she runs away to a far-off galaxy to recover from all of that while recovering she decides to eat a star <laughs> to recover we've all, been there. we've all been there you know it's like it's it's 2 a.m you know you're like oh jesus I, I, that was a rough night i should probably eat a star and commit genocide on an entire <laughs> planet uh, to to get these munchies gone um uh, so then some people named the Shi'ar Empire who are a not usually an opposition force for the X-Men usually like a friendly force but they're like wow we're going to put Phoenix on trial but by this point she has come back to Earth and Professor X has like put the circuit like the they call them circuit breakers or like safeguards on her mind to like lock the hard like the darker more powerful stuff away and she's reduced to her original powers as Marvel Girl so then the Shi'ar like Okay, but she still has to go on trial because she killed an entire planet. Uh, we don't take that lightly. So then they all get warped to the moon to have an honor duel. And if the X-Men win, they get to decide what happens to Jean Grey. And if the Shire win, they get to decide what happens to Jean Grey.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: In the battle, once again, she thinks Cyclops gets killed. She freaks out. She turns into Dark Phoenix. And wins the battle, but then she's like, "Oh my god, I'm too powerful!" And she goes and she activates an ancient Kree weapon that destroys her. So she uh, self-destructs for the good of everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was actually very uh, controversial at the time. Okay, at the time of writing, they had written a different ending for this. They had talked about different endings for like where the X Men permanently lock her uh, powers away. Or where the X-Men... Or, like, they permanently depower her completely so that she's just, like, only human. Uh-huh. Uh, or that she's in jail. But the com- different complaints against this were ranged, like, for the instance, if she was permanently imprisoned, the X-Men would continuously try to break her out. Um, yeah. And if she was just depowered and then taken back to earth someone compared that to taking the german army away from hitler and then letting him go back to rule germany <laughs> uh which i think is maybe a little strong a little but glib. a little glib the ultimate uh version of the comic the published version has her die hmm. interestingly fans came up with the idea of how they resurrect her oh um, wow so there is this thing where they say that in the plane crash from after the solar flare Mm -hmm. it's not actually like her body is still in the plane crashed at the bottom of the ocean the dark phoenix just took an imprint of jean Grey's personality and created a new version of her Mm -hmm. and then the longer her psyche was away from her body like, the more she disintegrated and the less stable her powers became, like, evincing all of, the, all of the bad stuff that happens, basically. Yeah. And so the way that they were able to later resurrect her in the comics is by saying, like, they resurrect her body somehow because people never stay dead in X-Men. They resurrect her body somehow, and then she is free of all of the crimes that Dark Phoenix committed because it wasn't really – that wasn't her, hmm. um, which is the only way, like, the editors were cool with bringing her back.
0: Right. Which all like
1: all very interesting. That's the Dark Phoenix side of things.
0: Uh, in regards to the Dark Phoenix, the original treatment for this movie was never written into a script by the X two writers, Michael Doherty and Dan Harris, mm-hmm. who followed Brian Singer to Superman Returns. Mm-hmm. Their original pitch was that this movie was going to be about Emma Frost. Oh. Played by Sigourney Weaver, wow. who was going to resurrect Jean Grey, Uh as an empath, manipulate her feelings to turn her evil. Uh And then Jean Grey, at the end, would kill herself Uh to save herself from being manipulated. And her spirit would turn into a god. That seems,
1: honestly, more in line with the comics. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Emma Frost is a big part of Hellfire Club and is a big part of that comics run. Yeah. So that's interesting. In the movie, what really happens is... What? What? What actually happens? What do they? What? How does she really come what,
0: back? How? I mean, it was a cocoon. <laughs> yeah. So I was. I'm glad you walked me through that because I was wondering the origin of the Phoenix in the comics. Because yeah. the explanation they give in this movie is that the professor has like separated her personalities yeah. since he met her into like good Jean Gray and evil the Phoenix.
1: And the Phoenix is the only one capable of her class five abilities.
0: Yeah, we've been going to mutant classes and all of a sudden in this movie, mutants have classes, which is something very important.
1: Yeah, it's like a very D&D sort of thing, but not even because if it was D&D, it would be level, not
0: class. I don't like the book seven Dumbledore treatment they give <laughs> the professor in this movie. Uh-huh. I am. It, it's not my favorite trope, but I am open to good handling of like this person who you've always thought is decent and good is actually like morally complicated. Right. I'm open to that. Sure. But I think it's like pretty mishandled in this movie. He also he's, he doesn't get any good moments in this movie. Like he's creepy from the off. Yeah. He starts creepy. He dies creepy. We start in 1986. Uh huh. Presumably at the latest 1986.
1: Yeah, because this movie probably takes. Well, this
0: movie takes place in the future not the present which it's important to remember so then
1: it's probably like 1987 or 88 yeah the maybe at the movie and
0: that we start 20 years earlier uh-huh. where the professor can walk
1: yes but he is bald and he also has powers yes and I, that he and magneto are tight still they're running a school together in 1980 80 late, something late 80 something
0: i think this is probably of the two plot lines the worst handled yes they go for kind of like a golem thing where she's only ever like the phoenix or jean gray uh, yeah how many lines would you guess she has in this movie dude like three? as the primary antagonist <laughs> like three maybe i counted okay she has 27 lines in this entire movie and how many of those would you guess contain more than two words Three or more words. Two. Six. Okay. Six. Only with six lines did they say this amazing actress who was the best part of the last two movies can be trusted to say more than two words. More than save me, kill me, Scott or Logan at any given time. Jesus Christ. Like, do you think she really filmed that or do you think that they just like once shot her standing still looking straight at the camera and then superimposed it into 80 different times in this movie actually i know this okay because the deal is
1: she studied multiple personality disorder to play this part of course she did because she's a great actress (laughs) she's a great actress she's trying to do what she can she's trying to do what she can with the material she's given and she's like okay let me do months of research oh, wow. on what it would be like to live with multiple personality disorder
0: uh-huh. to try and, like, get this right. I don't know. It's pretty rote, though. Like, she's evil. She comes back. She's evil. hmm And then uh, Wolverine kills her. Yeah. Yeah. There's There's no
1: complication with it, really.
0: There are two long sequences where she just stands still and silent. Yeah. As, like, things happen around her. Oh, yeah.
1: What like the Phoenix can't talk? Like that's not anything. Yeah. Like she so like as her dark goddess version of herself, she can't speak. It makes that makes no sense.
0: Yeah. Um. She also immediately kills Scott. Yeah. Who twice in a row draws the short end of the stick. My suspicion is uh-huh. that across this whole like seven hour trilogy, uh-huh. if you put together a compilation of just the shots that Cyclops is in, uh-huh. I think it would be less than 10 minutes. I think it would be more than 10, but I don't think it would be a lot more. And I think they're all in
1: the first movie.
0: Yeah. Uh, this one is at least kind of because he followed Singer to Superman Returns. Yeah. I couldn't find anything saying that there was any reason that Rebecca now no longer Romijn Stamos, didn't want to be Mystique. And that's why they also immediately Kind of kill her, take her off the map. Right,
1: they take her out of the. Out that of the seemed plot. to be
0: just because they wanted to.
1: Which is, I mean, uh, I mean, I obviously have uh, much love for Mystique, but she's like one of the coolest characters in the first two movies. She is Magneto's main henchman, and now he's got the douchebag with the flame hand, who isn't even like a real <laughs> like. It's not even a real yeah. power. He has to have like a lighter to light his like, the stuff on fire. And just because it's a cooler, like, Spider-Man thing that he's got up his sleeve doesn't mean that he, is, like, can create fire now.
0: The Magneto crew in this movie is so lame. They he has, so like, lame. the whole carnival. He's got, like, all- everyone from the insane clown posse, all the <laughs> juggalos. They're all wearing black. They're all goth. They all have bad powers. Yeah. And none of them are characters. Yeah, He's even got Ken Lung, which is pretty cool that he pops up in here, but he's just, like... Sonic the Porcupine, he just murders a woman. So, yeah. Let me ask you this now. Uh I've heard you talk in the past about stakes in these movies in a way that suggests to me in the context you were talking about him, that yeah. you think stakes are mostly characters dying. So is this like the movie with the highest stakes ever? Is this the ballsiest superhero movie? Or does it just go too far? No. It, that, it, that it takes off the map four of its primary characters? Well, it goes the opposite direction. Uh-huh. So it goes the opposite
1: direction of superhero movies where no one dies. Mm-hmm. And instead is like, well, what if it just doesn't matter? What if we just kill anybody? And we're just, <laughs> okay. I think it us wait, Okay. Let's uh, kill Cyclops? Cool. Absolutely no consequences. Nobody, there's not even a funeral oh, that's for him. True. He doesn't even get a gravestone
0: until after Gene Gray dies. Having seen Xavier's funeral, he might be better off for not having one of those. Sure. But still, a better movie would be like,
1: we lost the leader of our team. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. who's our leader now? And then not only did we lose the leader of our team, we also lost like the mentor of all of us which is even more important when, when you lose professor X and instead they kill both of them off and you kind of get like a scene of people feeling like bad about it, but you don't really get, none of it is tied to anything that makes any sense. It's also like they completely declaw the idea that any of the loss of powers matters because we never fully really understand how everybody feels about it. Hmm. Or like what side the X-Men are coming down on, on the, the cure, which granted it's a complicated issue, but there's not even any discussion of it as a complicated issue. It's not like it's a complicated issue and we don't know where we
0: fall on it. It's just like, yeah. So let's switch gears to talk about that. This is what's, as I understand it adapted from gifted mm-hmm. by Joss Whedon that came out after the last film. So contemporary yes. comic of the yeah. time. What did? uh what's the scoop on this one?
1: 2004. It is, an excellent comic. I recommend reading the entire run that Joss Whedon did on the uh, on the Astonishing X Men. He did Astonishing X Men numbers one through twenty four, I believe. Hmm. Uh, it's a pretty incredible run, especially if you like Kitty Pride. she's the main character. No, I do. Um, and it is this in this one. It's the first um, collection in them. It's the first six uh, issues. It is a character from outer space. Again, uh, has come to Earth and collaborated with Dr. Kavita Royale, Ra- Rao,
0: Dr. Casino Royale, Dr. Kavita
1: Rao, I okay. believe, um, who is in this movie. Um, she's is she the female scientist. She's the female who's scientist in this with, movie. Yeah, yes. okay. Uh, and they develop a mutant cure together, and this this comic handles it a lot better i mean there's like other things going on in this Mm -hmm. like the the villain plot line in this is much different and like what that alien wants is actually tied into a much larger thing that's part of the whole 24 issue arc rather than the six issue arc yeah and so it's really setting the groundwork but it delves deeply into like what does it mean that like so many of the mutants want to be cured what does it mean that some people on the X team want to be cured specifically beast? Hmm. Interesting thing about beast and about some of the other X-Men is that they have, they have their first, they have their primary mutation. So for like beast, it is his feet and hands get bigger. He's able to ha- he has like, he's much stronger. He's able to jump like much more, but he's human. He looks yeah. human. Later on, he gets a secondary mutation where he starts to grow the blue hair and become like he looks more cat. Like in this movie, they didn't do the whole thing to his face to make him look like he has like a cat's face. Uh-huh. But in the in these comics, you'll see like he looks really like a big blue cat. Oh, yeah. A cat person. Totally. And there's a big anxiety for the people who have very visible mutant traits because those people obviously like Wolverine can walk down the street. Nobody knows he's a mutant not so for for the beast. Yeah. Uh, sure. And not so for Mystique. Well, Mystique can shapeshift, but not so for like Nightcrawler, others of the blue people and other like the other ones who it's very obvious on them. Yeah. He has this anxiety throughout here that he is going to devolve, that this mutation is going to take him further and further into being an animal, which is really kind of a a grim thought that like yeah because especially because he's a scientist he's a brilliant mind Mm -hmm. but he's worried that eventually all that's going to go away and he's just going to be a big cat and that's a lot of what this is dealing with in a more i think a more complicated and nuanced sort of way yeah wolverine is pissed at the idea of a a cure no no thing with rogue where he's like yeah if you want to do it you should do it like i mean don't do it for some guy but you should do it if you want to i'm not your dad which i thought that was the whole point
0: of the first two movies that he is like not, like, literally biologically her dad, but... It felt like the, they were inching even closer in that scene to the weird relationship they skirt around with them. Yeah. Which I didn't like. I don't like that either. Like, I think, like, that works
1: only when it's one-sided from Rogue. Yeah, I agree. Like, when, it's, when he is
0: on... And in this movie, she doesn't really have any uh, clear affection, like, feelings like that for him that she does in the other two. Yeah. But then he like has that weird display. I will say Rogue looks so cool in the danger room at the beginning with oh, her hair back in the suit. She does look cool. And then we
1: never get her doing that in the rest no, of this movie. nothing even close to that. The, in, this, in this one, the X-Men are more blatantly against the people creating the cure. It's not because they're anti-cure necessarily, although they, they range across the team, have a wide range of feelings on the cure itself personally. But the main deal with them is they find out that they have been experimenting on mutants without their consent. They break into the lab. Oh, they find okay. a bunch of dead mutants. Oh man. And they find out that one of their own, Colossus has been that they thought was dead has been resurrected by the lab specifically to run experiments on. Oh wow. And so they are pissed. And there's, like, all of this stuff. It comes to a big explosive ending. I truly love these. And I think the way that it, it delves into it is really interesting. I think if you like the idea of the mutant cure plot, this is, like, this and the following couple in this series are really an interesting take on it. Hmm. As it gets adapted, Yeah, I think they handle it, like you say, better than gene gray yeah but it's it isn't clear how the x-men feel about it it's
0: not clear at the end what they're doing there yeah it's strange to me that they seem to be defending it i mean there are also like some strong visuals in this movie of like the u.s military yeah like mobilizing and preparing to wage war in a way that feels like extremely provocative yeah uh maybe it wasn't supposed to be i don't know that's where the yeah. x-men side yeah and the x-men also like decure other mutants oh yeah which seems they like do, don't they? shocking i mean i know they don't have kind of like the race baiting that magneto has right but still i think it could be a complicated issue yeah but it's just one that this movie is really unwilling to get it into yeah there's
1: also like a really interesting thing in this like talk going back to the idea of like x-men as or like the mutants as a cipher for marginalized groups specifically like the lgbtq community yeah that would be like in this it's made textual in this where one of the characters says we don't go around talking about like a cure for like we don't go around talking about a cure for homosexuality Mm -hmm. and then the doctor Kavita Royale says well homosexuality isn't a disease and she says
0: well we're watching different televangelists
1: Hmm. which I think is like a really interesting sort of
0: Yeah, take on that like i think today to me it reads as a closest uh analog to abortion uh, specifically mm -hmm. with like the mobs of people outside yeah um screaming at people not to do it yeah that is kind of presented as like a safe and legal option that is very like emotionally intense for everyone involved you Um, should have the right to choose but it shouldn't be like forced on you yeah i but i did see in some of my research, too, that there was, like, some speculation at the time or before that there is, like, a gay gene or that there could be, like, some way to oh, cure yeah. it yeah. Um, from, like, certain corners, which I think comes through clear just in, like, the dad and the son relationship. Yeah, yeah. Which is undercooked, but maybe it doesn't need to be much more because you get the metaphor immediately, yeah. very clearly. Yeah, for that sure. This is like a dad with endless resources who is willing to do anything, devote to... anything to having his son not be the other.
1: I mean, I also think about the history of mass sterilization in this country hmm. in enforced uh, non-consensual sterilization of uh consider like people who are considered like un unwanted or unhealthy for society. Hmm. And that's like something that the U S government did until the 1970s. And the X-Men are coming down on the wrong side of that. Then in the last movie part of this, because they're siding with the U S army who are, yeah, yeah, I don't see them as a force of pure good by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Also, this is interesting. And I thought I would just drop this in here about the president in this movie.
0: Yeah. Um, big part of this movie. A big part of different this movie. different president than the last.
1: Different one. president, which may might make you think that this is at least a couple years later. Yeah, than the second movie. And I guess couple- that
0: good mutant loving speech you made didn't get him reelected.
1: Yeah, I guess not.
0: Or maybe maybe a second term. Yeah, he could have been. This is so
1: this is so wild. So for this movie, mm-hmm. they decided to go for a the the president in this movie is very old. Yeah, uh, he's a old white guy, uh-huh. which is yes historically accurate to almost all of the presidents that we've ever had. Certainly, but but there was a vogue in that time from like the 90s to the two through the 2000s of like being like aspirational in who you put as the president in movies, right? Right. Like right. having I think there's a black president in Independence Day. Is that? Is that right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but like having a black president, having a woman president yeah. in these big disaster
0: movies. Lots of kids movies with female presidents, I remember from this time.
1: Yeah. So there's just like the idea of like this could happen and this is a fictional world. So why not? Like we, we like, you know, like being like liberal minded and inclusive and being like, yeah, they decided specifically not to do that for this movie <laughs> because they said it was overdone.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's fair. It's really underdone to have a white president. Yeah, right? (laughs) I read uh, that the Cure plotline was somewhat personal for Halle Berry. I Uh heard her talking in interviews about how when she was a child she would secretly wish that there was a way for her to not be black so she wouldn't have to be persecuted by it. Oh my god. Which and she talked about obviously how she didn't feel that way anymore. Yeah. But I thought that I felt that personal connection coming through yeah. particularly in the scene where Archangel comes to visit in there and she's like this is a safe place for you. and there's nothing yeah, wrong there's with nothing- you. Yeah. 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 yeah that Which is that is
1: like her most powerful stuff in this movie is like the standing up for mutants and i don't think she's given like enough to do in this movie but it does like kind of complete her arc over the three movies
0: of like i guess so yeah yeah it's pretty frame bare but yeah from yeah. kind of those few lines we get in the first one yeah to this let me give you a little bit of the behind the scenes drama here oh please so brian singer while he was filming x2 is cooking up an idea for a Superman movie. Okay. He presents it to a uh, longtime producer of these films, Lauren Shuler Donner, mm-hmm. who we've talked about the last two weeks, yep. and to her husband, Richard Donner, who mm-hmm. made the first two Superman movies. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, they like it, and they kind of make the connection for him to go over to Warner Brothers and pitch it to them, which happens in June 2004, after Superman Flyby, a movie written by J.J. Abrams that is pretty radical... And being directed by McG falls apart, like, right as it's about to go into production. Okay. So that falls apart. Did J.J. write Superman Returns? No. He wrote a lot of early stuff. He wrote and directed Mission Impossible 3 the same okay. year. He wrote Armageddon, was his like first big one okay. a few years before. Singer took his team with him, who wrote Superman Returns, Michael Darity and Dan Harris. He took the composer and editor, John Ottman. Mm-hmm. uh, He took uh, the, his director of photography, Newton Thomas Siegel, mm-hmm. and James Marsden. Uh, that movie gets released this same year, June, 2006 to relative success. Um, so all the, all that they had cooked up on this movie before then was the pitch that we talked about with Sigourney Weaver as Emma Frost. I would have loved to see that. They also started first developing Fox started first developing the X-Men Origins Wolverine, which we'll talk about next week, but that was their like first priority, After
1: doing a movie that is pretty much all about Wolverine's backstory,
0: they were like, you know what we want? More Wolverine backstory. (laughs) So Hugh Jackman himself had director approval... After Brian Singer left, his first pick was Darren Aronofsky, who he had just worked with this year on The Fountain. A
1: terrible movie.
0: <laughs> uh, I have not many fond things to say as that director, but I understand people really like him. And then this kind of does the original X-Men pass where they shop it around town and everyone turns it down. I mean, Joss Whedon, Zack Snyder, everyone turns it down. In February 2005, still no one attached to it, they said... This movie is coming out next summer. Uh, after that, they get Matthew Vaughn, who is perhaps one of my favorite directors, although he hasn't made any of my favorite films. But I really like his style and approach. He made, he goes on to make, spoiler alert, first class, uh, and then he makes the kick-ass movies, and then he uh, makes all the Kingsman movies. Oh, okay. I'm just kind of stuck in Kingsman land in yeah. per- perpetuity. But I really love like his style... Some of his quotes that we'll read in this, I really like too. I think he is a really exciting director. Mm -hmm. He was the one who signed on to make this. He cast Beast and then he stepped down. I have written here for family issues and time concerns. Yeah. Which is when I think he was like, um, my mom's sick and it has nothing to do with the fact that you want me to make this movie in this amount of time. Six months. (laughs) so brett ratner who was considered for the original he was on that long list Mm -hmm. of dudes we read got it in june okay with 11 months to make the movie before it came out in may he had no comic book knowledge whatsoever which he was pretty sensitive about so he had he like asked the writers to make sure that everything was from the comics And I think that's also why in this movie we get, like, a hint of the Danger Room, a hint of the Sentinels, the fastball special. It says that someone brought him an X-Men encyclopedia that he went through and circled all the weirdos-to-be in Magneto's thing of all the random X-Men because he wanted to make sure it was, like, accurate. They were also limited in the X-Men they could put into this because of origins wolverine which was their lead priority right so people like gambit and the blob couldn't be in this so simon kinberg who had also done uncredited drafts on the other fox films fantastic four and Elektra, okay him and zach penn were hired to write dueling drafts kinberg wanted the movie to be about the dark phoenix uh-huh penn and Fox wanted it to be about the cure. Okay. So both of them want it to be just about their plot line. Right. The studio thought that the Dark Phoenix story was too dark for a mainstream movie. Okay. Then the writers combined their ideas uh-huh. and like stayed on to turn it into one draft. Okay. So it's the same process, although a different co-writer has X2. Uh Fox also mandated that they had to kill Marsden because he was going over to do superman returns with brian singer they were originally going to do it off screen and have just someone mention that he died dude but the writers were like no we'll give him a cool ending they mandated killing stewart they were like this movie needs to have a big middle act twist and we think killing patrick stewart is it So those were like the guidelines. Alan Cumming was originally supposed to be in this movie. Back as Nightcrawler? He was willing to come back as Nightcrawler, although he was belabored by the makeup process. Uh But his part in it as written was so small that Fox says it's more expensive to have you come on and put on this makeup than it is to not have you in this movie. (laughs) So they kicked him out of the movie and they made X-Men the official game. That was released that same summer, a video game that explains where Nightcrawler is, is about what happens to Nightcrawler after X2 and where he is throughout this movie. (laughs) Presumably Um, like
1: leading some German school children in Catholic prayer.
0: (laughs) The other uh, major change that happened in the scripting was that originally the Golden Gate Bridge was like the middle set piece. And it was going to end with a huge assault on Washington, D.C. But they felt that that was too similar to a lot of other contemporary movies. I think the original Planet of the Apes. And also, they cited this. It's not a battle, but X2 does end in Washington, D.C. It ends in the White House. So they thought that it was too similar. And Ratner was, I guess, very bullish on the Golden Gate Bridge. He had some quote that it was going to be like the biggest sequence of his entire career. And then, like, that should be the big set piece at the end. It's really not that cool. I think that this movie looks so horrible. Yeah. And I think that, like, and I am not, like, someone who's against spectacle. No. But I think there, it's just kind of a losing game if you're trying to make the most expensive movie of all the time with the biggest special effects. Because it's, like, it just won't look good. Yeah. Like fourteen years later this just looks awful. Yeah. Even rewatching like the early MCU films now, yeah. they don't look good anymore. Yeah. The all, special I effects. Mean, I feel like in game in twenty years is I'm not sure. gonna look good. I'm sure. I'm I like to think it would look better than this, but I think that it's still like It's constantly evolving. So I feel like that's just like a tough losing battle if you're not smart about it. Yeah. I think this looks worse than the first two movies, like even the original, because I think they're smarter in those two movies about where they deploy the visual effects, like what they can get away with Mm -hmm. and what has to be CGI. They actually started making all the visual effects for this before they had a director, before they started filming, because they didn't want to go like over time or over budget. This movie had a critically mixed reception. People weren't positive about it, but it wasn't ravaged the way we think it was about it today. Mm -hmm. I looked on Metacritic. I don't know if people know this. I'm going to very briefly say it because there's like this whole thing about Rotten Tomatoes. But um, Rotten Tomatoes is an average of the ratio of critics who gave the movie a C or higher. So you see all these movies that have like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. That means that 100% of the paid, legitimate film critics who reviewed Mm -hmm. it gave it a grade of C or higher. Okay. So it could be that everyone agrees a movie is like a 7 out of 10, and it would have 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh. Uh, A lot of people think that it is an average of all the scores that were given to it. Yeah. Uh, That is actually on Metacritic, which is the... Aggregate I prefer to use. Okay. Obviously, it's a little bit complicated because different sites use different scoring systems uh-huh. and plenty of sites just review movies now and don't score them at all, which there's certainly an argument for as being better. And also like
1: the idea of where are you compiling from, too.
0: Yeah, for sure. For different sites. Both of them are like from verified You know, it's not like if I go and write a review, it'll be on either of those websites in the critics thing. But I looked on it. So on Metacritic, the original X-Men received a 64, Mm -hmm. X2 a 68, okay, and this a 58. Okay. So I think that's somewhat indicative of the – a little bit closer to indicative of the reception. Yeah. Obviously, those are averages. So in all of them, some people loved them and some people disliked them. But that's like around where most people fell. So it's a little
1: bit less, but not a huge amount less than the first one.
0: Yeah. Uh, Roger Ebert, who I've highlighted in this original trilogy, Uh in his first positive review of the trilogy, this is the only one he likes. He wrote, there are too many X-Men with too many powers for an 104-minute movie. There are times when the director, Brett Ratner, seems to be scurrying from one plot line to another, like that guy who had to keep all of the plates spinning on top of their poles. All the same, I enjoyed X-Men in The Last Stand. I liked the action, I liked the absurdity, I liked the incongruous use and misuse of mutant powers, and I especially liked the way it introduced all those political issues and lets them fight it out with the special effects. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone, in a prescient review, wrote, Last Stand, my ass. Billed as the climax of a trilogy, the third and weakest chapter in the X-Men series is a blatant attempt to prove there is still life in the franchise. And there is. Just enough to pull a Star Trek and spawn a next generation. Okay. So, critically mixed. This movie was, as we mentioned, derided by fans. Absolutely ripped into the dirt by fans for killing off it, the main characters. Simon Kinberg said, "Quote: There are a lot of things that I regret." <laughs> Brian Singer said, "Quote: It wasn't what I would have done, but that he liked Ellen Page," and Matthew Vaughn said. I storyboarded the whole bloody film. My X3 would have been 40 minutes longer. They didn't let the emotions and the drama play. It became wall-to-wall noise. I would have let it breathe and given far more dramatic elements to it. I believe it. Who is the protagonist of this movie, and what do they want? Okay, what a question. Would I want just to just not uh, be talking about this movie anymore. Yeah, yeah, no
1: kidding. Protagonist. Protagonist.
0: I mean, it has to be Wolverine. But what could Wolverine possibly want? What is he? He's not even in this movie. Is really? he? Now, wait I mean, a minute. Here's something. Storm really has much similar, if not more, screen time than him. Yeah. He doesn't, she doesn't talk she, as much. But she doesn't have she, yeah. as much of an arc. I mean, does he have an arc? She doesn't have to make a hard choice. Yeah. Because I guess she makes the choice to keep the school open instead of closing it. Yeah. Pretty. He like, makes the choice to kill her instead of letting her live and stay evil and kill people. Yeah,
1: and, like, destroy the whole world. It's not much of a choice. Yeah. I don't know. I think there's an argument to be made that it is... That it's, uh... eh. I don't know. <laughs> is I don't, there? I, is there an argument there's, there's to be made? There's really no argument for it to be anyone in the classical sense of like thinking there's a protagonist who wants something and undergoes a change. Like
0: just like let's just yeah. Take, let's just I take mean, down they make the those list. changes, but what could Wolverine want? Um, like what propels him through this movie? Because he doesn't want to find Jean at the top. No, because he doesn't know she. She's not But dead. he tells Scott, like, it's time to move on. He's over he it.
1: He wants to move on.
0: He's over it, and she comes back, and she tries to get it on, and he's like, not. he doesn't he's, even care.
1: Yeah, he's like, maybe this is not what we should be doing right yeah. now. Yeah. But his views on the cure are also, like,
0: the least well-articulated of anybody's, too. Yeah, where he's just like, do what you want. Do what you want. He has that true libertarian approach to it.
1: Yeah, which is... Not his approach in the comics. Let me stress. Yeah, he is, sure. He like fights Beast to try and prevent Beast from, from like taking the cure.
0: I would like to say that Storm is the protagonist of this movie, but I just don't think it's true. I don't think
1: it's true either, and I don't think she undergoes a change.
0: Here's the thing about the dueling plot lines. Uh huh. It's fine to have two plot lines at the same time. I would hope that they resolve in the same way. Like certainly if you're doing two separate stories uh-huh. being told at the same time, yeah. then like at the end they come together to be one thing. Right. And one thing solves both of them. Yeah. Huh. And that doesn't even close to happen here. No. Which is why I think that it's like so weird.
1: Even if they'd given Gene Gray the cure, that would make more sense. Yeah. Like they kind sure. of do that with the like, giving giving Magneto the cure. But if the they person- give
0: Gene Grey the cure and then it comes back and then they have to kill her. Oh yeah. I don't know. Yeah, something. Yeah. Feels like so many of these movies get to a point where it's like only a person who can't be killed can do this and then he has to do it. And it's just like the same thing, yeah, over and over and over. I also think it's lame that this movie and and this is something we talked about with the third one coming back to the first, uh-huh. but that this movie goes back to Magneto being the main villain yeah. instead of giving us another villain. I think his stuff in two is like brief enough to work, but it's like the comics – and a series of movies should be more about more than just the conflict between these two old men. Yeah, and that like he's once again kind of the big bad, but not even like I don't also know. Also, when he's not even like always the know. main big bad in the comics. No, it's about so much more. You know, it's like the like the
1: Sentinels, the U.S. government being the bad guys yeah. is like a big theme.
0: Trask, who appears in this movie very briefly, played by the actor Bill Duke. Yeah, I don't know
1: i i think it's i think it's wolverine just because by like default it's probably wolverine yeah
0: i think so too
1: i don't know is there anybody who has like a clear desire in this
0: movie though like at all um (laughs) i don't know there are certainly like like maybe choices there are certainly big choices that several different characters have to face
1: the dude who who's inspired by his
0: son's like
1: mutant like by his son being a mutant to create the like to create uh, the cure has stronger motivation (laughs) than any of the top build actors in this movie yeah also like this is what i think about like stakes this is interesting to bring it back to the stakes question for a second because like part of what is important in stakes is like knowing what characters want and like knowing why it's important that they want. Yeah. And like I don't even know what Jean Grey wants. Like she's not a good villain. She's the Phoenix is not a good no. villain because I don't know like the Jean Grey doesn't have a master plan.
0: Yeah. Magneto
1: doesn't even really have a master plan except So many
0: characters stumble along from beat to beat in this with no real purpose. Yeah. Like if Wolverine had to make the tough choice of killing Jean gray to achieve something that he has wanted the entire movie. Yeah. That resolves both of those plot lines. Like that's what it wants to lead to. Yeah. But there's no, there's just no point to it. It's not even like a big struggle. Storm asks him once, like, are you ready? To Uh kill her if you have to, and then he kills her. Yeah. That's it. That's the whole arc. I think Wolverine is the protagonist, and he wants to be in a Darren Aronofsky movie. Yeah, (laughs) right? Who's your MVP OTW on this one? (sighs) Um... And while you're thinking, let me briefly say this film does not pass the Bechdel test. Uh, This film hates women. I wrote in my notes that, uh, as we found out last week... X2 is a movie that was made by actors who are being openly hostile to their negligent director. Uh-huh. And this is a negligent movie that is openly hostile to its actors. True.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, I think what Wolverine wants is what we all want for this movie to be over. <laughs> <laughs> uh the, like that's the thing that's driving it. Yeah. Me. he's just like, hey, how many years did I sign this contract for? I would say MVP. Ellen Page as Mm. Kitty Pryde. Mm. Uh, She's the only one who uses her powers in a cool way that we haven't seen before. Oh, also just brief note, the juggernaut should be dead from the scene when, she uh, like pulls him through the floor because his uh-huh. molecules would have fused with the floor. It's not like you're just like the floor gets out of the way when you fuse through it. Yeah, you're part of the floor, and then once Kitty Pride lets go of you, your molecules would instantly fuse with the floor. Yeah, and no quippy one line. She should have just be been to... like severed, like a yeah,
0: elevator or a blast door. Or something. Yeah, it would have been
1: nasty. Yeah, but uh, and like she's she's smart. She's good she doesn't also have like really any arc or anything, but she's there. Yeah. She's doing better
0: than a lot of people. I read that she had been in kind of one indie breakout before this, which is how, um, Brian Singer had first heard of her Uh and they offered this to her and she turned it down because she didn't want to start doing Hollywood films yet. Uh, Wow! But then she came back to them and she said, how many days do I get to wear leather and be a superhero? Sure, I'll do it.
1: That's awesome.
0: <laughs> which is cool.
1: Yeah. Who's your MVP OTW?
0: Well, my, it probably would have been Kitty Pride, so I'm glad you picked her. Mm-hmm. I guess my second, then, would be Kelsey Grammer as Beast. Oh, okay. Who yeah. I think they smartly like give a lot of the weight to this movie, to, Which, again, is weird when so many characters we know are either immediately murdered or have nothing to do in this movie. Yeah. But I think it's smart because he's doing a great job. Yeah. And he wants to be there. (laughs) He has like an arc on this movie too. He has an important role. Okay. It's interesting that this film ends like the end of the status quo, where we go from here. Uh Uh-huh. Let's track this. Where we go from here that this movie leaves us at the end with. Oh, yeah. This is important because as we get into the rest of this series – Oh, well, the con- I assume the rest of the movies will all be prequels. But as we go from here, Beast is now like a UN ambassador for mutants. Okay. So things are looking up for mutants yeah. in terms of representation. Yeah. The school is being led by just, s- just by Storm and Wolverine. Yeah. But Colossus, Colossus Kitty, Kitty, and Bobby, Bobby. are X Men now. And Rogue is back but without powers rogue is human and so is magneto but we see the suggestion at the end of the movie that the cure wears off yes um and certainly if it wore off on magneto who got hit with four doses of the cure yeah then it would wear off on anyone although
1: it's also like magneto is one of the most powerful he's like a class four
0: mutant (laughs) sure sure (laughs) And he's also a cleric druid. Patrick Stewart's spirit is back in the body of the S- soulless body by Maura McTaggart.
1: Yeah, in the sting. In the post-credit in, scene. In the post-credit scene. The first of these movies to have a post-credit scene. And she instantly recognizes him, obviously, because why wouldn't she recognize? Well, she like, hears
0: his voice.
1: Oh, I guess.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem like they were I mean it doesn't seem like they were like close or anything in this movie. I'm yeah. sure we won't see much more of her in the future. So, what's the body count on this one?
1: Well, it's complicated. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's at least
1: 20 that I counted plus a bunch get insta-fragged by uh <laughs> by Jean Grey at some point where it's like a whole line of US soldiers and they just get turned into powder. But I think there's at least 20 that you see on screen deaths. So that is more violent than the previous one because, or about equal to the previous one, the number of deaths probably. Of course, it has more important characters who die. We have, as we already said, Cyclops, Charles Xavier, and Jean Grey die, and a bunch of Magnetos, like Henchmen, who have played large visual parts in the movie although they're not characters or speaking like speaking roles but Uh they but like pufferfish dude uh the girl who can like send shockwaves and callisto whose name i only know because it's in the credits um the girl who can run around really quick and
0: Uh smacks up on uh storm for a little while she was the third actor cast by vaughn before Uh ratner came aboard she's I guess she's good. I'm sure she would have had more to do in Vaughn's yeah, version like, if he I, cast her in Juggernaut specifically. Yeah, I
1: think she I think she's good in this. So I think she'd be better if she had lines. So yeah, 20.
0: Add another one for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay, um any brief last thoughts? Anything else you want to say? I want to say that I love the character Multiple Man. Oh yeah. Uh he appears Briefly in this, I don't love what he does, but I think his his very last moment where he's pretending to be in an army and then goes to just him is like very – he looks like his comic book version there. He's played by what the internet tells me is McSteamy from Grey's Anatomy. Oh, wow. And I would encourage anyone to look up the most recent, I think 2018 line of his individual comic because it's great fun.
1: Oh, I just have that Storm's main job – in the X Men Academy, is walking downstairs.
0: I would also like to mention that it takes an entire day for Magneto's army to cross the bridge. Oh yeah, because it's the middle of day when they turn it, and it's dead night two seconds later when they get to the end. Oh
1: yeah, Magneto at some one point says, "We are the cure," and I just wanted him to then say, "And this is a little song called Friday. I'm in love." <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> oh, that's such a good joke. Uh, <laughs> feel free to stop there. Okay. No, I mean keep going. I just I'm <laughs> I suspicious you'll have a better joke than that. Uh I
1: don't have any other jokes, but I do have um when we've got Iceman versus Pyro, it looks very much like the uh wand duel from the end of Harry Potter four. We've got the mm. fire versus ice. I was also reminded of a guy named George R. R. Martins a little little known book series for the big geeks out there called A Song of Fire and Ice Mm. I'm not sure if you've heard
0: of it well we might talk about those a little next week and all that's all I'll say about that
1: I don't know do you have any
0: last thoughts on this those were my last thoughts okay well then my last thought is I'm juggernaut all right we'll be back next week with 2009's x-men origins wolverine i can barely we wait. will be back for the next 10 weeks <laughs> talking about these x-men movies oh yeah i uh, love you guys bye cinema bums is a production of dkg podcasts it is created and produced by emma temple and me wade lawrence Holloman. i also edit and mix the podcast Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at Cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.